is a story called I Was a Spy in the Public Schools, and it's based on my real experiences teaching in public school. Uh, it's a little bit fictionalized with the names changed. I wasn't thinking very clearly, but I started to prepare my disguise. First, I put on a pair of neatly pressed conservative black pants. Then I put on dark socks and shiny new shoes. I had put on a clean white shirt and began to tie my tie when I realized that my two-day beard would be a dead giveaway. So I took off my shirt and shaved as carefully as I could at that time of the morning, trying not to cut my nose or nick my teeth. Soon, my disguise was complete. Tie clip, subdued sports jacket, new overcoat, neatly combed hair. The hair was the toughest part. My hair just wasn't used to looking like that. It was more used to looking like hair would if you didn't think about it much. I got into my car and started driving toward my territory. In about a half hour, I was there. As I pulled into the bus circle, I got my first look at the physical plant. It was surprisingly good looking with a rough stone finish to disguise the concrete and steel. It even had a pretty sounding name, Cow Valley High School. And my job was to convince everybody there that I was just a regular teacher. My first impression of Cow Valley's, my first impressions of Cow Valley are vague. I remember looking down a long, sterile corridor and hearing a loud voice saying something very sternly over the PA system, which seemed to be embedded in every square inch of wall and ceiling space. I asked someone where the principal, uh, principal's office was, and he motioned forbiddingly down the hall. <coughs> I managed to find my way to the principal's office. Suddenly, there he was. Mr. Sterner was tall, and the muscles of his body seemed very rigid. His face was tight, with little red blotches on the skin, and he somehow smiled through all that. He was standing, and I could see that he had a habit of nervously going up and down on his tiptoes. I don't remember much of what he said. I do remember that he wanted me to teach only the kids with, quote, no ability, unquote. Whereas I had been told previously that I would be working with underachievers. So I told him I'd been told differently, which didn't please him much. Finally, the superintendent who had hired me, Mr. Distant, came in. After chatting some more, I was introduced to the head of the English department, Mr. Bullfrog, who would be my immediate superior. He was a heavy, somewhat effeminate man who I later discovered had more courage than most of the other teachers. After meeting him, I was introduced to the guidance counselors with whom I'd be working closely. There were two, Mr. Whispersmile 
and Miss Christworthy. The high points of that period were the two faculty meetings I attended. I remember the first meeting very clearly. The principal stood in front of his teachers and said that they should really try to understand better the students, put themselves in their places. That way they could catch them better in acts like smoking and defacing the boys' rooms. In the second meeting, a girl representing the student council was brought before the teachers. I watch as this adolescent presented a student-devised dress code that was even more conservative than the one the principal had set up. The teachers nodded approvingly. And then the principal asked the teachers to give their frank reactions to the new dress code. One teacher said it should specify what kind of socks the girl should wear. Another said it should give the precise number of inches below the knee a dress could be worn or the precise length boy's hair could be. One teacher asked if this code really reflected the feeling of the students as a whole. Miss Christworthy said no, but they ignored her. I began to feel that I was the only one wearing a disguise of neat dress and the others were just neatly dressed. Shortly after I had begun working at the school, I met another art teacher, Carol Rebel. She was another undercover agent in the cause of freedom, and she recognized me almost immediately. I thought her disguise left something to be desired, too. In fact, she told me that Mr. Sterner was already strongly suspicious of her. Among other things, she had almost been caught passing information, that is, talking to students during non-school hours. Soon I had selected 26 students with whom to start my program. Most of these were students that teachers uh, uh, were having problems with. In other words, kids who refused to accept what was being crammed down their throats. All of them were neglecting their homework, which is not surprising. But most also neglected their educations, which I could help with. I felt that this group probably had a better chance of becoming really educated and independent and free than any other group in the school. I had a meeting with the whole group to outline what we were trying to do. I told them to imagine that, they were, that we were going to start our own school. In that school, we could do just about anything we wanted, as long as it doesn't get us closed down by the other school, as one member observed. It didn't take long for them to realize what was happening. We were given a small office-type room to meet in. I thought this might be a problem, but it turned out to have some distinct advantages. The room didn't have a hall window that anyone could look into, and it wasn't bugged with a loudspeaker that could listen to you when you didn't know it. Very shortly, some remarkable things began to happen. We had been in operation less than two hours, <clears throat> and I had just finished eating lunch. As I put my tray away, a voice said, Jerry, 
and I looked around and discovered it came from a boy inside the kitchen. Jerry, how, I, how can I get into your new program? <laughs> I was a bit stunned, but I asked the boy his name, and I'd let him know if I could get him in. This sort of thing happened a few more times in the next three days before Christmas vacation. Meanwhile, the students were coming in, listening to records, making tape recordings, reading magazines, using the typewriter or special reading machines we had, sometimes just sitting, or more important, talking freely. In those first few days, we talked about many things that those kids had never talked about inside the walls of a school. During that time, we passed the point of no return. They, they had to have complete trust in me, and I had to have complete trust in them, or we'd both wind up in trouble. I heard a lot in those days. I heard about students who had been smoking for years, whose parents didn't know it, about kids who were beaten almost every day, about teenage alcoholics, about 15 and 16 years old. On the third day, I received two short stories. One of them was written by a boy with writing ability and a good ear for dialogue. It was 40 pages long and had lots of profanity in it. This piece was almost publishable, but the kid was close to flunking English. As the final bell rang signaling Christmas vacation and the children fled the school, I thought, so now I'm a public school teacher. After we got back from Christmas vacation, nobody called me down to the office to discuss any irregularities, which was very encouraging. It meant that our security system was working. The intense discussions continued. We talked about long hairs, the advantages and disadvantages of the, of the old farm life, alienation, we didn't use that word, but that's what it amounted to, Einstein's theory, history, Benedict Arnold wasn't so bad, Ethan Allen wasn't so good, etc. By then we were allowed to occasionally use the regular classroom adjoining our little office. One day, when it was available, I called a meeting at which 12 students were present. I wanted to know what equipment they thought was needed, what suggestions they had, and so on. It was a very dull meeting. They were still afraid to say what they felt in a large group situation. Twelve is large, I guess. One boy spoke to me afterwards. He was very insecure about such an open-ended situation, and he thought we were wasting time, not working enough, not focusing enough. I suggested that he was free to work on what he wanted to. That didn't alleviate his anxiety. He said, in effect, that he felt guilty having fun doing what he wanted. I told him uh, that when he was able to feel comfortable in our situation, he would probably be doing more productive and creative work all around. One thing, he didn't ask to leave the program. Another boy who was supposed to have very low ability, as, or as one teacher said, he's very limited, very, very limited, suddenly started getting A's in English. I felt like I was getting somewhere. There were amusing incidents, too. Once, when I said something about being a teacher to one of the students, he looked at me quizzically and asked me 
if I thought I was a teacher. When I said yes, he said in a beautiful psychiatric voice, how long have you been feeling this way? Did you have an unhappy childhood? Did you hate your father? <laughs> the relatively smooth period didn't last long. I soon discovered that it seemed to be impossible to work undetected in the cause of child freedom in that public school. My disguise was not so perfect after all. I was called down to Mr. Sterner's office three times in two days. One time Mr. Sterner looked at my stonily serious face and smiled a sick smile. I guess I should smile, he said. I once read in a book somewhere that the administrators should have friendly relations with their staff. We talked for an hour or so, each of us very guardedly expressing their feelings. He seemed to be saying that more control, more direction was needed. The idea of students making decisions and learning according to their needs seemed frightening him to death. He was upset by the fact that I was working with some students who seemed to have perfectly good scholastic ability and were simply bored stiff and hated school. He wanted me to work only with kids who had specific reading problems. Without directly saying it, I indicated to him that I would quit my job before I would kick one kid out of the program. He backed down and said I could keep them. He kept referring to the Federal Grant for Remedial Reading program that I had been hired under. He wanted me to throw out everything and run my program as it had been run in the year before. Last year, 26 kids were hammered to death with nouns, verbs, phonics, reading skills improvement over and over again. Those were students who already hated reading. That program was like trying to undo a knot in a water hose by pulling on both ends as hard as you could. The result? A complete block. The results of last year's program confirmed that. There was no significant improvement. Not even the usual growth, nothing. Continuing the holes, hose analogy, I think that the thing to do is to relax the pull on the hose and work back to the basic block, carefully loosening the knot and pulling the end through until the water can flow freely through the hose again. Of course, this can only be done with no tension on the hose. Mr. Sterner wanted me to put more structure into my program. Structure, structure means tension. He wanted me to observe other teachers. Mr. Bullfrog said he felt caught in the middle. At one point he told me he had been instructed to make me put more structure, more directiveness into my program. When I asked why this had to be done, he said it was tradition. When I asked him, uh, <clears throat> which he thought would be more effective, my approach or a structured one, he said, that's a rotten question to ask, but it's irrelevant. You don't have that choice. On the contrary, there's always a choice. They sent me to see a real remedial reading teacher. I watched her work. I told her what I was doing and why, and she was really excited about the possibilities. I reported that to Mr. Bullfrog and we talked more about my ideas. He appeared to understand some of what I was saying, yet I knew that he was pretty sure 
that it was the method and not the result that was important. Bullfrog kept saying in different ways that the school owned us. I kept saying that nobody owned me, but that somebody had asked me to teach, and I was trying to do just that, and I wished they'd let me. That was during the midterm period when teachers often had little to do, but they dared not leave the school early lest they be seen by someone in the administration. Occasionally you would see a teacher, coat in hand, stealthily, sneak around the corner and you'd know that he or she was about to make a break for it. Carol Rebel, the art teacher, was laughing at me now. My disguise had turned out to be even worse than hers. I began to realize the basic problem. You can play it cool only for so long before you get cold. At that point, you either internalize the system because you don't want to lose your job, or you come out of hiding and fight. There was another session with Mr. Sterner. Mr. Bullfrog was there. I presented a short paper to them which cautiously expressed my overall philosophy. As I reread the paper, reread the paper later, I noticed I had made a beautiful Freudian slip. I had wanted to say, it is hoped with this multi-phased approach, something will strike home. But instead, it's called it a multi-faced approach, <laughs> which is much more descriptive of my role, but hardly what I wanted to admit. <laughs> But after I tried to explain that I hoped that students would eventually become more self-disciplined through making choices and responding to real needs, he asked me, this may sound like a silly question, but if you let them do what they want to do, how can they develop self-discipline? <laughs> Mr. Bullfrog reported the horrible fact that some children referred to me as Jerry. Mr. Sterner reported that one student had been caught smoking in the bathroom during my class, and so on. Mr. Sterner said he thought our philosophical differences were possibly insurmountable. I let it be known that I hoped we could find common ground, for if I found I was doing more damage than good, even if I was being less destructive than most other teachers, then I would be gone the next day. Meanwhile, the kids knew exactly what was going on without my having to say a word. How's it going with Sterner, they'd asked rhetorically. <laughs> As my next move, I submitted a list of changes in the program to Mr. Sterner. That included a schedule of when students would be there and a structure of regular reading, writing, and so on. We put none of them into effect, but I hoped it was possible to pacify the bureaucrats for a while by changes on paper, no matter what the reality was. Meanwhile, we took a few more steps toward the point of no return. One boy who either daydreamed or acted antisocial in class suddenly began reading some of the materials in the room. Three days later, a teacher asked me if he was in my class. When I said yes, he commented that the boy had suddenly started working and had gotten an A on a math test. Another of my students who called himself anti-Christian anti because he opposed the moralism preached by his rigid mother began to discover that he had internalized a lot of the moralism. Toward the end of the week, Mr. Sterner began turning his anger toward the students. 
he gave two of our members detention. Detention is an interesting phenomenon. It assumes that being in school is a distasteful experience and that the ultimate punishment would be to detain in the school and that the ultimate punishment would be to be detained in the school. As far as I could determine, neither of my students had done anything seriously wrong. Both were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, namely in the halls at the time Sterner was. One of the students came in the next day and told of having nightmares about going into Sterner's office and saying, this is unconstitutional, I have rights. Then Sterner would give him two months of detention. And he, when he protested again, Sterner raised it to a year and so on. I went to the monthly meeting of the freshman class. As I walked in, a student was telling her peers that the administration would never pass their proposal for a student smoking lounge and they might as well drop it, which they did without a vote. Then she announced that turtleneck shirts were no longer allowable dress because they were now considered giggle, an undergarment, another giggle, and a sweater must be worn over them. After that, a boy came to the front and apparently tried to organize some sort of dance or something. I couldn't hear him. Every so often there would be a vote. Once he asked if anyone knew what they had just voted on, and there was a low groaned no from the board constituents. As I listened, I realized why the only decisions students are allowed to make are ones about one-shot deals like dances. Those affairs don't involve any real property or ownership or long-term responsibility. So such decisions don't constitute any real threat to the adult establishment. One of my students suddenly decided that the school should be run more democratically. He was supposed to be a slow student, but sometimes he could be quite perceptive. He observed that kids broke rules simply because they did not participate in the making of those rules. He also thought there should be some sort of student jury to whom you could appeal punishments. He talked to a few teachers and some members of the student council about this. The next day he came in muttering about the impossibility of his idea. You'd have to change practically everything. Anyway, I don't want to be thrown out of school. During the next couple of weeks, there were more stories like the previous one. I also found myself feeling more strongly that I shouldn't write anything I didn't want my students to read. Indeed, a few of them had been following this account of my experiences. But if I were to write things which my students couldn't accept or would be offended by, then I probably would, be, would have overstepped my bounds in trust and probably in accuracy. Carol Rebel told me one story. One of the students was in her art class, and one day she noticed he wasn't doing anything. Why don't you draw a picture of Jerry, she suggested. Jerry? Who? He asked. Jerry Mintz, she said. Uh, I don't know any Jerry Mintz, he said with a straight face, but I know a Mr. Mintz. This was from a boy who would never call me anything but Jerry. In another case, a teacher rudely, without explanation, ordered one of my students to move to the front of the class. 
As the student walked forward, he muttered something to himself. Another teacher noticed this and demanded to know what he just said. The student could have denied that he'd said anything, which is standard humiliation procedure. However, he said, I called him a bastard. For this act of honesty, he was sent to the principal, who ordered him to spend two days in detention. He also required the boy to write an essay on respect. The students talked to me about his the student talked to me about his feelings. He said he thought respect ought to be a two-way thing, and he certainly didn't feel his teachers respected him very much. Perhaps what the teachers wanted was a pretend respect, since they didn't warrant real respect. Finally, he decided he would present these views in his essay instead of writing the usual bullshit. Later, the boy asked uh, told me that to ask the assistant principal, the, later the boy told me to ask the assistant principal, Mr. Avoidum, if he could see the finished essay. When he gave it to me, I asked him what he thought of it. Well, it's interesting, pretty well written. Of course, I disagree with his philosophy in many parts, Mr. Avoidum said. His philosophy? Imagine Mr. Avoidum talking that way about a child classified as a poor reader, disciplinary, disciplinary problem, wise guy. I didn't think he would ever be able to think about that boy in the same way again. And I didn't think that boy would ever think about himself in quite the same way. More and more spontaneous writing was coming from the students. One boy wrote a 47-page story. Another boy was writing a lot of songs and poems, some of them fairly good. That poetry bit was started by a newspaper article about a friend of mine who wrote poetry. We had one of his handmade books. I went to another faculty meeting. The main issue at it was that an assembly had been called one day without much notice. One student complained that all her plans had been interrupted. Others agreed. Finally, it was decided that all assemblies would be scheduled two months in advance. Personally, I wasn't bothered by the interruptions because what happened in our room was almost totally spontaneous and planning beyond just having a lot of interesting things around was antithetical to that. I guess the other teachers were so threatened by anything spontaneous that they needed to plan two months ahead. Mr. Avoidum had taken over as acting principal to allow Mr. Sterner to work on expansion plans for the school. Things were beginning to get wild again for a variety of reasons. Some new students in the program, a new principal, and coincidentally, a lot of anger coming from a few of my students. Two of my students were caught smoking in the bathroom and sent to Mr. Avoidum. In trying to protect me, one of the boys became flustered and said, Jerry didn't know anything about it. So later in the day, I had to explain to Mr. Avoidum why a student had called me Jerry. I told him that I'm used to being called Jerry and don't react when I am, but that I had told my students they're supposed to call me Mr. Mintz. Mr. Avoidum seized upon the last part of my statement and said, Good, now we can hang him on it. But knowing his mother was just looking for an excuse to send him to reform school, I managed to persuade Mr. Avoidum 
not to suspend him. The other class members were pretty disgusted with the pair. A few days later, the student came to my class and said that he had purposely left his cigarettes in the car, having decided that smoking was not worth the risk. Of course, the car belonged to a girlfriend who was playing hooky from another school. <laughs> he had smuggled her into Cow Valley as another friend's cousin from New Jersey. When he told me he was planning to cut an assembly at the end of the day and leave early, I pointed out that he was running a risk. What do you care? It's my ask, he countered. Another class member reminded him, he's already saved your ass once. Yeah, I know, he said pensively. After a while, the wild period subsided to a certain extent. This was partially related to some definitive personality changes in some students. He became wilder and wilder. He ran around the classroom chasing and being chased by other students. He wrote angry things on the typewriter and sometimes yelled so loud that I'm sure the business teacher in the main classroom reported it. He was caught smoking. One day he described a series of outbursts he had at home, running, yelling, breaking things. His ex explanation for his behavior was spring fever. After about three weeks of this, one day he said simply, that he was over his spring fever. He added that he was sick of having his teachers think he was stupid. So he figured he might as well do some homework. About that time, his English teacher came to me and asked what she could do to get the boy to do some work. I suggested that kids like that might be afraid of competition and maybe he should be allowed to do some independent work to catch up. I really believe that every kid in the school should have the opportunity to do independent work, or no work at all for that matter, but I made my advice sound specific to that boy's case. At any rate, the timing must have been right and everything clicked. The boy immediately did some independent writing. After flunking vocabulary and spelling quizzes all year, he got 395s in a row. Another teacher came to me in desperation concerning another of my students who wouldn't do anything in class. In this case, the boy was repeating freshman English, taking sophomore English at the same time with the same teacher and flunking both of them. It seemed a good, a good opportunity to try the independent study suggestion again. The teacher was taken aback, noting that, noting that independent study was for honor students only. I asked her, what could she lose? Finally, it was cleared through the guidance counselors and the principal that he could try independent study for one of the classes. I talked to the kid about the idea and he thought it was great. I think it would be good for everyone in the school, he said. Why should you have to study boring things when, that you're not interested in? I pointed out to him that if it worked in his case, we might be able to sell the idea for use to, with other students. Later, the teacher came to me ecstatic and flabbergasted. The boy had read volumes of work in the library during his independent study time, had well thought out ideas concerning his project, and was even getting involved in her other classes. About the same time, there was an explosion in creativity among some of the other students. Three handed me poetry or stories for the first time. And the boy I mentioned earlier, who had written dozens 
uh, or so song lyrics or poems had by now written 46 of them, all in the last three weeks. Some are trite, some are obscene, some are absurd, and some are very interesting. I read all of them without much comment. They were becoming better and better. But if I had judged and corrected, he probably would have stopped writing them long ago. This is one which I found particularly interesting. It seems to express quite well the double binds and confusion children face today. It's called, what? Anything. Yes, anything and everything. Anything. Anything I do, I do wrong. Nothing. Yes, nothing and know-how. Nothing. Nothing seems to ever go right. If it's right, it's wrong. No one. Nothing, no one, and nobody. No one. Nobody ever looks my way. They look the other way. Something, something, somehow and somewhere, something, something's just got to go right. I said right, right. First day, first day, middle and last day, first day, every day, I'm lost. I'm lost, went and gone. Come on, come on, go away and here, now, come on, stay away, go back, hit the sack, I heard it into my back. Shove it. Shove it. Pull it and leave it there. Shove it. Leave it and let it rot there. Don't pull it, because squash. Listen. Listen. Do it and don't. Listen. Shut up. Do it. Don't. I'm dead. Alive. Maybe yes.